Father, indeed, all the power and all the glory are due to you. You have accomplished salvation. You are the one who made the heavens and the earth, the seas and the dry lands. You are the one to whom all praise is due. Father, I pray that through your word this morning, you would stir us up to want to praise you. Cause our hearts to feel that you are worthy of praise. And Lord, I pray also that you would increase our confidence in you. Lord, would you make us instinctively ready to trust you, ready to believe that whatever comes our way, whatever afflictions or difficulties or challenges we may face, you are using this for our good and you are able to save. Lord, cause this to be visceral for us. And Lord, we pray that you would apply this also to, to those moments when we are tempted to sin. We pray that in those moments we would believe that your way is good, that your promises are true, that you withhold no good thing from those who walk uprightly. And we pray, Lord, that through this, you would enable us to obey the Apostle Paul when he urged the Thessalonians to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and in everything to give thanks. Help us now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I was thrilled to hear this morning that you will soon be celebrating some baptisms here at the Moody Church. And I wonder if you've ever thought about what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 10 when he speaks of how the people of Israel were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And in addition to that somewhat perplexing statement, you also have the Apostle Peter who, who speaks of how baptism corresponds to the flood of Noah. And today, as we look at Exodus chapter 15, I want to hopefully show the Old Testament foundation, both for what the Apostle Paul says about the people of Israel being baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and the Old Testament foundation for what Peter says about the flood corresponding to baptism. So before I start into the text of Exodus 15, let me just say a word about this reality. The, the flood, Noah's flood, was obviously a visitation of God's wrath, His judgment upon the world. And through those waters of judgment, Noah and those with him on the ark were saved. And those flood waters came to symbolize God's wrath against covenant-breaking sinners. Similarly, when we get to the, the Red Sea, uh, we'll find that Moses, the author of both Exodus and Genesis, Moses in, in various ways in Exodus 14 points back to the flood of Noah. For instance, he speaks of the waters covering the Egyptians in the same way that they had covered the mountains. And, and there are various other uh, references, you, unique terms that point back to the flood account. For instance, there's a word used to, to speak of the dry ground that occurs back in Genesis 6 through 9, and then it occurs again here in Exodus chapter 14. And, and I think what Moses wants his people to see is that the same way that 
Noah was saved through the waters of judgment in which all his contemporaries died, the people of Israel were saved through waters of judgment in which the army of Pharaoh died. And there's a a little sense in which this even recalls what happened to Moses when he was put on an ark and put into waters in which all of his contemporaries would die. And then as as you trace this across the Old Testament, God's wrath comes to be spoken of as overwhelming waters. And so just one instance of this, you know, in, in Psalm 124, they say, uh, if, if, it wasn't, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. When people rose up against us, and, and, then, and then they say, they would have swallowed us alive. And in this text, we're going to read of the waters swallowing Egypt. And, and then they go on to say, when the floods rose against us. So the human armies in Psalm 124 are spoken of as floodwaters of God's wrath. And I think it's this dynamic that prompts the Lord Jesus to say in Mark 10 and parallel passages, I have a baptism to undergo. You know, the the sons of Zebedee come to him and they say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he says, well, I have a baptism to undergo. And he's obviously talking about going to the cross. And what Jesus is saying is, at the cross, he is going to be submerged in the floodwaters of God's wrath. He's going to be baptized in the waters of God's wrath. And when we place our faith and hope in the Lord Jesus, we are united to him by faith so that his baptism in in God's wrath counts for us, so that there is no wrath that remains for those who have placed their faith and hope in Christ. And this is what is depicted and symbolized when we are buried with him in those waters of baptism and then raised to walk in the newness of life. And so I would just say, if there's anyone here this morning and maybe you're thinking about Christianity, you're exploring it, but you're not yet identifying as a Christian, this is the good news that we're holding out to you. We're holding out to you the truth that the Lord Jesus was buried in the waters of God's wrath on behalf of those who will trust in him. And so we would would urge you, we would plead with you to place your faith and hope in him that no no wrath might ever overwhelm you. With that, let me invite you to look with me at Exodus chapter 15. And we're going to be looking this morning at verses 1 through 21. And there is a a beautiful structure to this passage that is very common in in Old Testament psalms and hymns and and even narratives are sometimes structured this way. And and for Moses' audience, this would have been as recognizable to them as the structure of our songs is recognizable to us. You know, when we sing a song, we expect... Uh, many in, in more recent songs, verses, and then a chorus, and then we'll return to the verse, and then maybe there'll be a bridge, and then we'll have another verse, and then maybe close on the chorus or something like that. But it's a recognizable form. What we're going to see is that this song of the sea has what's often referred to as a chiastic structure. What that means is that it has an X shape if we were to align all the pieces and set them up the way they are. 
Uh, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the beginning and the end, because these correspond to one another, and then I'll take the second and the second to last, and then the third and the third to last, and this will place at the very end what is at the center of this chiastic structure. And as we move through, you'll be, you'll be able to see the way that, that these things correspond to one another, and they, they actually help to communicate Moses' message. So this is not just something that's artistic, it's also a vehicle for communicating the truths that Moses is, is trying to get across to his audience. And I think the big idea that Moses is trying to communicate is that worship looks back to look forward. Worship looks back to look forward. You know, this is what we do when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We say, Paul said to the church in Corinth, as often as you eat and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, looking back at the cross, until He comes, looking forward to His coming. And that's the very thing that they're going to do here in Exodus chapter 15. Worship looks back to look forward. Uh, if you can, imagine how you would feel if you were an Israelite standing on the other side of the Red Sea. Just the day before, you had come to the Red Sea and you had realized, here comes the army of Pharaoh. And, and you would have recognized that you're trapped between the army of Pharaoh and these waters, this sea that is before you. And then against all expectation, Moses raises his staff according to the command of God, and God, by the blast of his nostrils, parts the waters, and dry land appears. And, and you begin to make your way across, but then here comes the army of Pharaoh. And as you get across the sea, the waters close, and Israel sees the army of Egypt dead on the shore. Well, praise is the right response to salvation. God is worthy of praise. Look at, what, look at what Moses says in Exodus 15, 1 and 2. We read here, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. Now before I go on, let me just draw your attention down to verse 21, where Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. And you notice how those words in verse 1 are the same words in verse 21. So where it starts is where it ends. Now just a side note here, this is, this is glorious and beautiful and wonderful. Some scholars suggest that perhaps Miriam was the author of this song of praise. Because we read here in verse 20 that Miriam the prophetess the, the sister of Aaron. This means that she was inspired by the Holy Spirit, Miriam was, and that when she spoke, she spoke true words from God. And, and, and then the suggestion is that perhaps what she prophesied on this particular occasion is the content of this song, which would align what Miriam does here with what Deborah does over in Judges 5. There's another song of praise in response to God's deliverance. And with what Hannah does in 1 Samuel chapter 2, a song of praise in response to the way that God gives uh, Samuel to her, opens her womb and, and gives her a, a, a child. And then Elizabeth and Mary do this same thing in Luke chapter 1. They sing these inspired songs of praise. 
So that's a kind of minor point of application. I would just encourage everyone in the room, but in particular maybe the ladies who um, the Lord often grants these kinds of poetic abilities to women, I would encourage you to use your gifts to construct songs of praise. Maybe there's a, a songwriter here this morning just waiting to be told, go ahead and exercise your gift and, and sing songs of praise to the Lord. Give to the people of God ways to praise the Lord. Follow in the footsteps of Miriam. She says, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. And then verse 1 continues, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. You know, the people of Israel were on foot. And here came Pharaoh with all those chariots. And it was as though the Lord took the chariots of Pharaoh and lifted them off the, off the ground and threw them into the Red Sea, triumphing over them by his might. And then in verse 2, there's an initial response to this. The Lord is my strength and my song. Yahweh is my strength and my song. Israel did not have the power to do this on their own. Israel only was saved because of God's strength exercised on their behalf. The Lord is my strength and my song. What they're singing is the Lord and His might, and He has become my salvation. Those words in verse 2, you may recognize them from other parts of the Bible. They're in Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2, which incidentally, Isaiah 12, 2 is responding to Isaiah 11, where Isaiah prophesies of the shoot that will come forth from the stump of Jesse, the Messiah who's going to arise, and he's going to work this new Exodus work of salvation. And then in response to the new Exodus work of salvation that the Messiah is going to work, they're going to sing the song of the sea, essentially is what Isaiah says when he quotes Exodus 15, 2 in Isaiah 12, verse 2. Similarly, Psalm 118, verse 14 also has these words. And in that psalm, this is the one where the, the conquering king approaches the gates of Jerusalem. And he says, almost echoing Psalm 24, you know, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And, and then it speaks of how the ancient doors and gates should lift up their heads. And the conquering king says, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them. And then the people who are gathered at the temple, they say, we bless you from the house of God. Hosanna to the king, they, they cry out. In that context too, Psalm 118 verse 14, they're quoting Exodus 15 verse 2 again because Israel's future king is going to work a, a salvation that is bigger than and better than, but after the, after the pattern of the Exodus from Egypt. Well, as I said, verses 1 and 2, this song of praise, this call to praise uh, is echoed by verses 20 and 21 where Miriam, the prophetess, uh, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing, and Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. You know, all over our lives, there are so many ways for us to recognize God's power on our behalf, most prominently in the salvation that he has worked in Christ. Let me urge you to commit yourself to praising God. He is worthy of praise. He has delivered us from our shame, from our guilt, from the, the weight of His wrath that would have crushed us 
for eternity. That's what he's done for us in Christ. We owe him praise. So application point number one, he deserves praise. So obey what Paul says to the Thessalonians. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. Verses 3 and 4 of Exodus 15 are going to correspond to verses 18 and 19. So this is the second and second to last units. And in verses 3 and 4 and 18 and 19, this is what, what's, what we're going to see. We're going to see them say something about the Lord. In verse 3, what they say is that the Lord is a conquering warrior. In, and in, verse, in, in the corresponding verse, in verse 18, what they're going to say is that the Lord is a reigning king. And then in, in the, the other parts, they're going to say something about Pharaoh being thrown into the sea. So look with me at, at verses 3 and 4. It says, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. It's interesting, that reference to the chosen officers. Literally, it's a reference to the third ones. And, and this probably refers to the way that those chariots would have had three people in them. There would have been a driver holding the reins, and there would have been uh, an archer ready to shoot, and there, there would have been the third guy who was the guy in charge, the officer, and he's the one directing traffic. He's watching, uh, telling, telling the driver where to go, telling the archer where to shoot, coordinating with the other third men, and all those guys, Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's chariots and his host, he cast into the sea. His chosen officers, imagine the glory of Pharaoh, the mightiest king on earth. Imagine the Elan, the dashing, daring do of the army of Pharaoh. I mean, these guys are ready at the command of their king to go charging between the walls of water that have appeared at the Red Sea. This is courage. This is discipline. This is military might that is ready to risk its own life because of the command of, of, the, of the Lord, their Pharaoh. Those guys would have been powerfully impressive. They would have been overwhelmingly intimidating. And the Lord is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. That's what it says literally there at the end of verse 3. Yahweh is his name. And maybe you think of the way that Moses went before Pharaoh and he says, thus says Yahweh, let my people go that they may serve me. And Pharaoh's response is, it's, it's like he says, well, I've got all my gods around me. Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? And the Lord says over and over again, you will know that I am Yahweh. And now the people praise him saying, Yahweh is his name. Mightier than the armies of Pharaoh he is. Now look down with me at verse 18. Because he is the conquering warrior, because he is the man of war, verse 18, the Lord will reign forever and ever. And then verse 19, for when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. So the Lord, Pharaoh, into the sea, both of those, those parts. Now this is where it, at this point, we get to the third and third to last sections. And this is going to cover verses 5 through 10. 
And then uh, verses 13 through 17. Uh, and this is the, really the heart of this song. And what's going to happen in verses 5 through 10 is they're going to look back at what God did at the Red Sea to destroy the army of Pharaoh. And then in verses uh, 13 through 17, they're going to look forward to what God is going to do at the conquest of the land. So they're worshiping God, and they're looking back to the Exodus to look forward to the conquest. And Moses, or perhaps Miriam, is teaching the people that the way that God saved them at the Exodus is the way he's going to save them at the conquest. Because at the Exodus, you've got Pharaoh and all his army, overwhelmingly powerful, and God crushes them. At the conquest, there are going to be seven nations in that land, every one of them more numerous, more mighty than Israel. And what's God going to do? Well, the same thing he did at the Exodus. He's going to crush those nations. He's going to harden the hearts of their kings, just like he hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And he's going to bring them down. And, and Joshua and the people are going to cross over the Jordan River, just like they crossed over the Red Sea on dry land. So look with me at verses 5 through 10. And the first thing I want to point out is the way that Moses has created a bracket for us around these verses, or again, perhaps Miriam. Verse 5 says, the floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Look down at verse 10. It says at the end of the verse, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. So waters and sinking, stone, lead, those concepts are bracketing these verses for us. And, and this is the way that the biblical authors structure their material, by these reused key statements. So the flood covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. The Lord saved Israel at the Exodus by a strong hand and an outstretched arm. Verse 7, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. And then verse 8, at the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed. It's as though the, the, the deep places of the, of the seas suddenly began to firm up and congeal and were no longer this fluid moisture. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. And again, we saw yesterday the way that later Scripture uses these statements. David, in Psalm 18, he quotes this reference to the blast of the Lord's nostrils to speak of the way that God delivered him. Because the way that God delivers his people in the past is the way he's going to deliver them in the present and in the future. And so David says, essentially, God did something like an Exodus-style salvation for me. It's like God brought me through the Red Sea when he delivered me from the hand of Saul and from the hand of all my enemies. Verse 9, the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. And you can hear the boastful power of the army of Egypt. And the response in verse 10, you blew with your wind. The sea covered them. And, and this is reminiscent, isn't it, of the way that in Genesis 8, when God remembered Noah, he caused a ruach, a wind, to move over the waters 
so that the dry lands reappeared. So again, these texts, I think, are intended by Moses to be read in light of one another. When we read of the Red Sea, we're supposed to think of the flood. So in response to to this, uh, what what we can say is that we should be confident, we can be confident that God who began the work of the Exodus will complete the work of the Exodus. Or to put it in our terms, the God who saved us will continue to complete the work that He's begun in us, Philippians 1.6. This is what God has done for Israel. He began the work of the Exodus by visiting the plagues and then accomplishing the Passover, and then they get to the Red Sea, and what, God, what does God do? He completes the work of salvation. He brings them through. And he's going to continue to do this. He's going to give them manna from heaven and water from the rock and on and on it goes. So we can be confident, here's another point of application, we can be confident in God that he who began the work will complete the work. Now look with me, we'll pass over verses 11 and 12, we'll come back to them in just a moment. Look with me at verses 13 through 17. And again, in the same way that Moses bracketed verses 5 5 through 10, he has bracketed verses 13 through 17. Look at the end of verse 13. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. It's as though the Lord shepherds them to his dwelling place. And then look at verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. So again, the Lord shepherds his people to his dwelling place. So verse 13, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. What motivated God to save Israel? What motivated them to bring them, what motivated God to bring them through the Red Sea? It was his steadfast love. That's who he is. He is the God that that perhaps is best represented, his his character, who he is, is perhaps best represented by this Hebrew term, chesed. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. We'll get more of this as, as we saw just a second ago in verse 17. In verses 14 and 15, Um, they begin to sing of the the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. And and the message is, in the same way that God defeated the Egyptians at the Exodus, he's going to defeat the inhabitants of Canaan at the conquest. So he says, they say in verse 14, the peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. And you remember what Rahab said to the, to the spies that Joshua sent into the land? As soon as we heard that you had come, our hearts melted within us. And I think the author of Joshua, he knows the song of Moses, and he, he hears that report of what Rahab says, and he says, I've got to include that because what the Lord said would happen is exactly now what has come to pass. And notice how these verses are speaking as though it's already done. The peoples have heard. They've already heard. The exodus has just happened. The Red Sea has just happened. But the the deed is as good as done. The conquest is as good as accomplished. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. 
Look at verse 16. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. And they are still as a stone in the way that, verse 5, the Egyptians went down into the depths like a stone. So again, the way that God saved Israel at the Exodus is the way he's going to save them at the conquest. This is what Moses is teaching his people. Till the people pass by at the end of verse 16, whom you have purchased. And then verse 17, quickly, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. You know, the mountain of God in the book of Exodus. If we just had Exodus, we would think this is Mount Horeb, the mountain where God is, is going to make himself known. But as we continue through the Old Testament, we learn that God is going to have his temple built on Mount Zion. And then eventually, as you continue through the Bible, we, we, we learn in Ezekiel 28, for instance, that Eden was a mountain where God dwelled with man. So you've got Eden, and then you've got Sinai, and then you've got Zion, and this is all pointing forward to the new Jerusalem, where God is going to dwell with man. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. And I would say that this section also teaches that we can be confident. We can be confident that, as Paul puts it in Romans 5, 9 through 11, if we've been justified by his blood, much more will we also be saved by him from God's wrath. We can be confident that Christ has saved us and that when we stand before God and the final judgment is about to happen, Christ's salvation applies there too. God began the exodus, he's going to complete the exodus. God brought them through the Red Sea, he's going to bring them to his dwelling place. And this, this brings us back, doesn't it, to verses 11 and 12. Look at verse 11 and, verses 11 and 12, which are the centerpiece of this song, and often in these chiastic structures, what you have at the very center is the most important idea. So here it is, verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. And, and that language of the earth swallowing them, it anticipates, doesn't it, what's going to happen to Korah and those rebels. It, it anticipates the way that the psalmist in Psalm 124 is going to speak of how the enemies would have swallowed Israel had it not been the Lord who was on their side. The Lord is worthy of praise. So, you know, my applications in this sermon are structured the way that Moses has structured this song. He begins by saying, sing to the Lord. And then he says, the Lord is a man of war and a reigning king. And then he says, what God did at the Exodus is what God is going to do at the conquest. And then in the middle of the whole thing, he says, who is like you, O God, among the nations? And my applications say, they begin, you should praise God. You should be confident in God that the one who began the work of salvation is going to complete it in your sanctification. And you should be confident in God in the one who justified you when you believed is also going to declare you righteous when you stand before him at the final judgment. And then, now here at the end, you should praise God. You should rejoice always. You should pray without ceasing. In everything, you should give thanks. 
I suspect that like me, you respond to the Israelites with, with almost disgust as you, as you continue to read these narratives. They get out into the wilderness, they don't have anything to eat, and, and we, sh- we think, well, surely they're going to say, the God who saved us is going to feed us. But that's not what they say. They say, He's brought us out into the wilderness to kill us. And then God graciously gives them manna from heaven. And then they don't have anything to drink. And we, we would think, well, surely they're going to say, the God who saved us and the God who fed us is going to give us water, right? That's not what they say. Again, they say, is it because there was no graves in Egypt that you brought us out into this wilderness for us to die of thirst? And God graciously, mercifully gives us water. And what we should learn is that our response needs to be, whatever comes our way, I'm going to praise God, I'm going to be confident in God. Because I don't want anybody to look at me and say, haven't you learned anything? The God who saved you in Christ, the God who sent His own, He did not spare His own Son, but freely gave Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the song of the sea. And we thank You, Lord, that in Revelation 15, those saints who have been redeemed and they've been preserved through this life and they've overcome the devil and they stand before You in heaven and they sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Lord, we praise You that this song will be our song forever. And Father, we pray that You would make us ready to praise You. We pray that you'd give us hearts because of the new birth, because of the work of your Spirit in our lives, hearts that cannot help but sing your praise. And Lord, we ask that you'd make us confident in you, supremely confident, so that as we pray for wayward children, as we face devastatingly the death of children, as we deal with wrecked lives and broken marriages, Lord, we pray that you'd make us confident in you in all these circumstances, that you are working these things together for our good. We love you. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We pray all this in his name by the power of the Spirit. Amen.